This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me, and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are wrapping up. Yes, we are. Uh, this series on what is the Bible. Woo-hoo! And in this episode, we are going to ask each other the question, why bother with the Bible? I mean, what's it all about? It doesn't matter. All of that. So uh, we'll jump into that in just a second. First, let's do some introductions. My name is Keith Childs. I am one of your many hosts. Um, I am the author of Sola Mysterium. Hey! Celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything, and I am joined by my illustrious co-hosts, uh, Katie, December, Shonda, and sometimes Matt. Say hello. Hello, everyone. This is Katie. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Community. The, oh, I, I remember the first time that was played, my very, very first introduction. <laughs> Thank you for the... <laughs> I also play the harp for those of you that don't know. Uh, yeah, and I do context. have a chakra aligning CD uh, for you. I'm excited to talk about the Bible as always. Hello, everybody. This is December Rose. I am the author of The Church Can Go to Hell and other written works. And I'm so happy to be here. And I also am excited to talk about the Bible and why it's important and maybe why it's not. That should have gotten a heresy comment. Uh, <laughs> So this is Shonda Ja, and I am the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I am sometimes Matt joined with the full panel this week. It's been a while since all five of us have been together. Uh, I've missed it. It's um, It's been fun doing some one-offs in different formats, but it's nice to have the whole gang back. And I'm excited for... Well, I'm excited to wrap up a series about a book that I no longer really read. <laughs> well, I don't spoiler about uh, <laughs> your opinion here. So wild endorsement right there. Yes. <laughs> well, but before we get into the meat of this episode, before we visit our lovely heretic of the week, we do have some stone thoughts. Legend has it that Jesus died at 33. What if he lived to be 80? Do we think he would have learned anything? Or do you think he would have done anything from age 33 to 80 that he would have needed to repent for? What if what if we have a Jesus that actually needs to repent just like we do of certain things? I know I'm going to get the heresy button on that one. 
Oh, wow. Fascinating. That's a, that's a great one. Well, you know, uh, that's a good question. Like, would, would Jesus have to do something he repented from? Well, according to the Bible, God repented. So it wouldn't be, it really shouldn't go against anybody's theology to suggest that maybe at some point Jesus would have needed to repent. <laughs> question reminds me of the sweet little film that's not going to change anyone's life i think it was called tomorrow where the guy like sneezes during a little portal and gets moved through a portal in time and he goes to a world where the beatles never existed oh yeah right yeah so he recreates all their songs and they all become number one hits but spoiler alert everyone in this movie john lennon never got assassinated oh wow he lived he goes in yeah. yeah, so he goes and meets the 70 or 80-year-old um, John Lennon. So this kind of reminds me of that. What if we had this 80, 80-year-old oh, Jesus? For All Mankind also does not end up with John Lennon getting assassinated. And so he and Yoko end up being like powerhouse radical anti-war activists for their yes. entire lives. Good. Yeah. Is that the show about the space race? Yeah, what Alternate if uh, Russia had landed on the moon first? Oh, yeah, interesting. Wait, wait, what's so, it of course, we all know Middle Ages. For All Mankind. Lennon. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it. But of course, as we all know, middle age is when the most repentance has to happen. Yes. <laughs> well, this is the thing. This is totally what I was thinking about when uh, when we were listening to the Stone Thoughts, because I had this amazing professor in seminary. His name was David Tracy. He's kind of like legendary uh, for his studies on the Trinity and also for being like the white guy who does liberation theology in really legit ways. Um, but I remember taking a class with him and him saying... You know, most of the theologians we're studying, it would have been better off. We would have all been better off if they had stopped writing at about 40. Wow. Now, his best work is like still happening and he's in his what, like 70s, 80s. But I think what he was saying is they tended to be radical when they were young and then they tended to have something to lose when they got older. That's right. And I wonder, I wonder if a Jesus who hadn't been murdered by the state would have gotten invested in the status quo. I don't think so, but it is a fascinating question. (laughs) That deserves a heresy. Yeah, come on. I I wonder, you know how a lot of these movies fantasize or romanticize uh, his relationship or not relationship with Mary Magdalene or whatever? Yep. So I want my my thoughts would be I wonder if he would have ended up with wife and kids or something if he had gotten any further down the road. Yeah, isn't that? Isn't that what uh, the Last Temptation of Christ? Isn't there a scene where he's he's sort of like uh, imagining what if he had avoided? What if he had cross? gotten to have a regular life? Yeah, yeah. If he had lived a, to a long life and he had kids and all that stuff, I, that was actually the most fascinating part of that movie. Um, I really liked that. That was actually really cool. It's a very heteronormative framing, but yes. <laughs> if then, well, then I'm like, would they become swingers? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> middle normal life and then gotten bored with it and gone to the other extremes oh, yeah my. well i was gonna say i would like if, to think if, not <laughs> <laughs> yeah much, me too. too far too far yeah. okay I, I was gonna say if he, if he did have if he did live long enough to have children then that's probably when he would start having re- uh repenting and regretting and like ah, oh, darn it yeah well de- but, jesus definitely lo- lived long enough to have children and to get married well he, li- he lived long enough that he could yeah. have had children i mean yeah uh-huh. if he had I mean, yeah. I mean, like now. Mormons believe that he did get married and had children. Right. And so does uh, Dan Brown. Yeah. <laughs> really? I, I did not know that. Mormons oh, do yeah, believe yeah, he got the, married and had children? 
that's the pivot point of what was that book called? The Da Vinci Code? The Da Vinci Code. Yes, that's the whole point. That the Holy Grail was actually his daughter, right? Well, the Holy Grail is Mary's Mary Magdalene's womb. Mar- yeah. Okay, Mary Magdalene. But then, yes, that they had a child together. Yeah. There was a daughter and it grew up in Spain or France or something. I don't know. France. I remember talking with a, th- a friend of mine who was a theologian when that book came out. And I was like, what do you think? Is that brilliant? And he's like, it's basically saying that instead of doing radical world-changing work, Jesus had a wife and a baby like 90% of people do. Why right. is that more radical than what he actually did? Right. And I thought that was pretty powerhouse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You I don't know. If he did have him? kids, I think he would understand the concept of hell. <laughs> <laughs> he would no longer have been a universalist. Right. Yeah. Um, do you all watch Ted Lasso? Uh, I, I wish I did. Oh, it's a, it's a <laughs> show uh, Apple TV. But there's there's a funny scene where one of the main characters, uh, Roy, is reading the Da Vinci Code for the first time, and every page he's like, "Oh my gosh, you're not gonna believe this!" So, <laughs> oh my gosh, very cool. Right, so have we have we solved the problem of Jesus, uh, Jesus in middle age and old age and? Uh, Oh yeah, day yeah, kids definitely he'd have to repent of something. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like you're gonna snap at some point in time. Awesome. Um, well, so we are going from that to our illustrious heretic of the week. Y'all are really, really going to um love this heretic. Her husband has been a heretic, but this is the first time she's ever been on the show. So you're gonna hear all about her journey, her deconstruction, her reconstruction, and where she is now. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Laura Forehand, and some might call me a heretic. Hi, Hi Laura. Laura. Hello. <laughs> uh, so wonderful to have you on. Uh, thank you for agreeing to be our heretic of the week. And um, of course, we always have to start off by asking the question that is burning on everyone's mind. Laura, why, uh, why would anybody call you a heretic? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here today. I'm so excited to be with both of you. Um, I think that the reason people might call me a heretic is because I am not really buying what the church is selling. And I think I have felt that way for a really long time, even probably when um, Carl was a pastor and I was a pastor's wife. I had a lot of questions that... um, I couldn't ask. Um, it wasn't safe. It wasn't a safe place to ask those questions. Um, I didn't agree with the churches, our particular denomination stance on LGBTQ, IA plus, um, brothers and sisters. I didn't agree with, um, our denomination stance on women. I felt that some women had a lot of power in our church, depending on the family, maybe that they were from, but many women's voices were silenced, including mine. So I really did um, feel like church was just absolutely sucking the life out of me. I wasn't able to be um, my authentic self. And then I truly feel like with in the process of the 20 years that I was a pastor's wife, I seriously lost my identity, who I really was before becoming so involved in the church and our particular denomination. Mm. Yeah. 
Mm. Wow. I know you're not alone in that. Uh, I know a lot of women, especially, you know, I think you're right that being the pastor's wife, it's just this, um, it, there's this other whole other layer of, um, of pain and trauma that I think you end up going through because, you know, like <clears throat> most, most men, I guess, I mean, I would say probably every man that enters the ministry, right. Uh, would say that, Oh, they had some kind of a calling. They really felt God was calling them to this. I I've never met any women who felt like, or like what pastors wives who were like, Oh yes, I felt called to try to put on, live up to this standard of, uh, wearing that mask and uh, and being the perfect Christian woman, and you got to be able to play piano or organ. Perhaps you have to be be great with children. Uh, like you know, like, there's all these things that are expected of you automatically. Um, and and yeah, it's uh, it's not easy, is it? No, and in fact, that's really funny that you mentioned that because that was the first, one of the first things I said to Carl when he was like, I feel like God has called me into the ministry. I mean, who am I to question, you know, God's calling. I'm using that in air quotes, but I told him, I said, well, I'm not going to be a typical pastor's wife because I don't play the piano. I don't play the organ. I'm not going to teach Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really interesting how, um, I never did play the piano or the organ because I, seriously don't know how to play, <laughs> but you do kind of get roped into the nursery yes. and teaching Sunday school and women's ministries and things like that. So, um, but that was probably part of the big problem that I had was I always felt like whatever I did I could not share with him. I, we couldn't really talk about it, not because he wasn't willing to hear me or didn't care about what I said, but I really did feel this sense of who am I to question his calling? And I certainly don't want to be the one to have this whole ministry tumble down because of me. Right. But what's really, really funny is that every church that we left was because of something that I did. So I guess, you know, <laughs> Oh, yeah, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Man. Wow. Wow. So it's, yeah, I think, uh, go, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's gotta be, there's so many layers to this, right? When you're, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to be a pastor and it's hard enough to be a pastor's wife, but then if you don't fit the molds, you know, like they want you, they want you to do it a certain way. Like they look up to you. But they, but only when you, when you play game, when you play ball with them, right? The, with the, mm -hmm. and the yep. minute you go off course, whether you're the pastor, generally a male in evangelicalism mm -hmm. or the pastor's wife, you know, a, a woman, you have to stay the course. Otherwise the minute you go off course is the minute they turn on you and get someone else to fill that role who is going to play ball. That's exactly it. And I feel like maybe you were a fly on the wall in every single one of our churches, because that's exactly what happened. And the thing that's so devastating, or it was for me, and maybe, maybe this speaks to other pastor's wives that might be listening. But the thing that was so devastating is that the rules always changed. So mm -hmm. like you were saying, Matt, you know, you're playing ball and you're trying to really play to the best of your ability. And then all of a sudden the rules change, or all of a sudden they're not happy with this one little thing and it all comes crumbling down, you know, and, and all of a sudden, and it's just so hard to, um, be in that unstable environment. It really does wreak havoc 
on your mental and emotional well-being did me anyway yeah sure well sure yeah i was just thinking like nobody has an expectation of a plumber's wife or an insurance salesman's wife or really mm-hmm. pretty much almost any other thing you know except maybe if you're the president maybe they expect something of the first lady but you know maybe maybe a few random things like that but yeah um it's just not easy at all for uh pastors wives who sort of get many of them just roped into this thing and then but what's funny to me is how being a pastor's wife because in my experience when i was when i the short period of time i was a pastor in different places um you see things don't you you're aware of things it's sort of like you get to be backstage you get to be behind the scenes of the way mm-hmm. church is work versus the way they project themselves what they what they say from the pulpit the way they you know sort of pretend for for the congregation and i'm just curious right. how how any of that affected you um as a as a pastor's wife because i'm sure you saw things that didn't line up with what you thought church was supposed to be about well exactly and so much of it um i'm not here to bash any gender in the church but for me and my experience a lot of that came from the women in the church. So I really think that the women in our church, even though I talk about how many women didn't have a voice, there were certain women in certain families. And I think those families were very strong families, maybe the ones that gave the most money to the church or, you know, their family had founded the church or whatever. They had very strong opinions and very strong um, voices And by voices, I mean, they um, tried to go through me to get Carl to change his mind. Uh, But I did see a lot of very, for lack of a better term, very unchristlike behavior. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of um, just manipulation. And so that was really, really hard for me to reconcile in my mind, because I'm kind of a rule follower. And so like, if you tell me that a Christian is supposed to be um, someone who emulates the life of Christ, who follows the way of Jesus, and yet we're backstabbing, we're gossiping, we're leaving, you know, we're excluding people. um, That's not going to sit well with me. Then I have a lot of questions and I have a lot of concerns. Um, but again, I was, it wasn't a safe place to bring those things up. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of things that just were not jiving for me at all. Um, but I really, again, didn't want to go and bother (laughs) Carl with that. Not because he wasn't receptive to me talking to him or anything, but again, I didn't want to be the one to question this whole calling Mm -hmm. into ministry. Yeah. So Laura, um, something we like to ask people is kind of like, how did you get from there to here? And from what I'm gathering from you, a lot of it's going to be experiential. And that's, that's what it is for a lot of people. They experience things in the church or the faith that doesn't line up uh, with what they're told or what they believe or what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, But how did, so how did you get from where you were when, when Carl was pastoring to where you are now and and definitely want to talk about uh you co-authoring a book with carl mm-hmm. um and and doing a podcast with him um so what was kind of the the pivot points or maybe a couple pivot points along the way yeah and i would say for sure 
like a big pivot point for me was just seeing how um, people were tr- not only treating each other in the church, but eventually treating um, us in the church. So it's, it's kind of like we came in because Carl was always asked to pastor at these uh, church plants. They were basically churches dying. Um, so there might've been like 12 people. So he was supposedly coming in to save these churches and he did really well. He did really well. And while things were going well, um, everybody was happy, you know, but once everybody got comfortable, then things start going south mm-hmm. pretty fast. So just seeing all that, um, the things that didn't line up with that, with what I thought, um, you know, being Christ-like was supposed to be, <laughs> I wasn't seeing that. Um, and then honestly, I just started emotionally detaching myself from the church. Yes. I still showed up every Sunday. Um, I sat in the front row, but I was no longer emotionally invested in anything that was going on in those churches. Um, a lot of times at every church, and we, he only pastored three churches, but at each and every one of them, something happened and it like, it literally the whole ministry turned on a dime. And I was just in my head trying to reconcile, how do we go from being so loved and adored Mm -hmm. (laughs) to being like, we really question whether you were seriously called into ministry and having Mm -hmm. people like literally say that to our face. Um, Very, in my opinion, very, you know, inconsequential things. Um, At our first one, it was, we were encouraged to go to, um, we, these were all very small towns. So we were encouraged to go to this big, um, street party, street dance. Um, and we were actually encouraged to go to that and meet people because we were brand new. So they were like, you know, you need to go, you need to meet people. So that's what we did. And then, um, you know, they were playing, a band was playing music. And so Carl and I slow danced together. Okay? Oh, no. Uh, I know. What were you thinking? Right. I mean, I know what you're married. What was I thinking? <laughs> uh, we're married. It was a slow dance. I, nothing suggestive was happening. Um, but you would have thought the world was about to come to an end and, and really like from then on. And the thing is that I couldn't reconcile in my mind, like, what did I do that was so wrong? Like I, I had a dance with my husband. First of all, we were encouraged to go. Yeah. They told you to go slow dance with, it's a dance. It's a dance. Yes. Yes. And then wait, you danced Oh, with my husband. Oh, I mean, I wasn't dancing with some strange man or you know whatever (laughs) and so like but from then on like I just couldn't reconcile in my head what I had done wrong but I felt so much shame Mm -hmm. so I felt so much shame I felt much guilt but I couldn't figure out I just couldn't put the pieces together why and then fast forward to our last church um our daughter turned 21 she said mom for my 21st birthday I'd love if we could go to a winery together and we could have a glass of wine together. Like and Jesus. I thought that was I mean, a pretty big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. like Jesus. That's yeah. right. <laughs> but I thought it was a really big deal because, you know, a lot of times when your kids are teenagers, they can't really stand you. And I'm like, yeah. here's my 21 year old daughter. And she actually wants to spend time with me. You bet. I'm going to go. Yeah. And she took a picture. She put it on Facebook and mm-hmm. the rest is history. Somebody from church saw it. You know, we were having alcohol, even though like barely filled the 
bottom of the glass. But so it's those kind of stories, Matt. It's like, I couldn't, like, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I was, you know, you, having you a lovely, I was having a lovely evening with my husband. I was having a glass of wine and having a beautiful relationship and conversation with my daughter. How is that wrong? And yet the church, um, just poured on so much shame mm-hmm. and as if I had done something so detrimental to our faith, our ministry and our church. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that's the, okay. That, that story in so many forms is very common. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, sh- especially the, the part about shame and guilt and piling mm-hmm. it on. And it's just, I know that's going to resonate with, uh, with our listeners. Especially yeah. those who are pastors' wives, because I'm sure there's got to be some of them. Yeah. And and the thing is, too, is that when it's happening, though, I love how, I mean, I'm I'm glad that you pointed that out, Matt, that it will resonate. But in that moment, you feel very isolated and alone. Oh, yeah. You feel oh, like, yeah. I'm the only one that's done this to right. her husband's ministry. Yeah. And you feel like no one has your back in the church. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the worst thing about it. I think, you know, it's funny too. Right. Like, uh, some of this stuff, too, like I was raised Southern Baptist and absolutely. I can remember one time, uh, Wendy and I were celebrating our anniversary. It probably was like our third, second or third anniversary. We'd only, only been married a short amount of time and, and we're not big drinkers. We're still not, mm-hmm. but you know, it's our anniversary. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to go get a bottle of champagne and, you know, some cheese and wine or something like that. I, th- I think it was wine. So a bottle of wine and some cheese and crackers just to kind of celebrate just a, little, a little celebration for the anniversary and a card and some roses. Right. So actually I was in, I was at the grocery store and I'm in the line and I'm actually, all I had was a bottle of wine. That's all I had in my hand. I didn't have anything else. I just had a bottle of wine and I'm just about to get checked out. And I look up and I see the pastor, thank God, not my pastor, but the pastor of a of another Baptist church in town. And he knows me. And he sees me and he's like, Keith, brother Keith, how's it going? He comes over to me and my heart is like racing. I'm thinking, oh dear God, don't let him notice the right. bottle of wine in my hand. I'm trying to hold the bottle of wine. It's all I have. And he's so like, thinking, he's thinking the same thing though. He's too, thinking, right? dear God, don't let him notice me. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. There's actually a joke about that. It's like, um, I can't remember the all of it, but it's like um, something like Jews don't recognize Christ as the Messiah. Um, uh, Muslims don't recognize Jesus as the son of God and Baptists don't recognize each other at the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I, I was terrified that I was going to get caught. Thank God he didn't, if he did notice, he just let it go. And, you know, it's like, ah. but I was like, oh, I was so stressed out by that. But at the same time, I can remember years later, um, some friends of ours, uh, well, it was, we were friends with a guy who was the pastor of an Anglican church. This was in, Newport Beach, California. And he invited me to go to dinner. It was a church group that was going out to dinner. And he, he said, oh, come with us. And I'm like, okay. And we go to the, go to the restaurant and the wait, we all said, it was a big group of people, like 20 people. And the waitress asked, would you, would you like to start with a bottle of wine? And my immediate reaction was, oh, you poor dear, you don't realize we're Christians and you're going to be embarrassed. <laughs> and instead the Anglican pastor goes, that sounds great. Let's have two bottles of red and two bottles of white to start. And then, and I was like, what? Oh, they're Anglicans. They drink, you know. So, so sometimes it just it depends on what 
denomination you're in, right? If some of them mm-hmm. are like, they mm-hmm. don't care about the drinking. They might care about something else, but um, yeah, there's always going to be, you have to navigate that a little bit. You know, some denominations don't care about dancing. Baptists for some stupid reason do. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to Very. know. It's hard to know the rules. <laughs> That's just it. And the rules are always changing. So yeah. 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 So I'm curious, was it, it was, um, was it mostly for you getting from where you were to where you are now? Was it mostly that kind of thing? Or were there any theological questions like, you know, you weren't sure about this teaching or this doctrine or anything like that? Or or just was it really like behaviorally people weren't lining up with what you thought it, you know, looking like? Jesus well, yeah, yeah, th- that for sure. But then also I, I'm a teacher. And so, um, when I was a first grade teacher at the first school that I taught at, I was also the academic bowl coach. And um, I had a couple of students that came out to me and it just was a real struggle for me to believe the teachings of the church when I knew these students and I knew, and I saw how, um, tormented, especially one of them was because they were not living their authentic life um, because they were afraid because of their church. They had a lot of shame. And so I was just like, surely what we're hearing. And I too, I mean, Carl was a, a pastor at Southern Baptist churches, mostly or Baptist Mm -hmm. in general. And so you, you know, we understand a lot of those teachings, um, but I just, I couldn't buy that. I couldn't buy that. Um, God did not 100% love and affirm these students that were coming to me, um, with this, this heavy burden of just trying to be their authentic self. Um, so just, yeah, a lot of that type of teachings and those teachings in the church, I just, wasn't buying at that time. And, and now I would say the point I am now, I mean, there's just a lot of things that I question. I mean, but it doesn't really matter as much to me now as it did then, if that makes sense. So whether all the stories in the Bible are actually true or whether they're just stories that have been passed down, I I don't care (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) if that makes like, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I don't think that's what helps me be a better person and, and love other people better. Um, so yeah, so I would say probably both, probably both of those areas, people were not, in my opinion, behaving like the te- like we had been learning about the teachings of Christ, but then also some of the teachings about how we should love some, but not others or, love the person, hate the sin. Like I just, I just wasn't buying all that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, it'd be really great. I think, uh, for people going through this kind of stuff, if there was maybe like a book, like if somebody Mm -hmm. could, who've been like, if maybe a husband and wife, maybe past former pastor and his wife, if they could write a book about their experiences like that. And then, then in the future, other people going through similar things, they could maybe just read that book. And they would maybe understand like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not alone. Other people have 
Don't do that. Do you know of any books like that, Laura, that, that you would, would be? That would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't it be awesome? <laughs> yeah, Carl and I actually did write a book. To be honest with you, I never anticipated publishing it because it was really just a way for me to begin my healing journey. Mm -hmm. um, but we did write a book together and it's called out into the desert, thriving outside organized religion. And um, yeah, so it just kind of goes through a lot of different things about the church and about beliefs um, just kind of where we were two years ago. Um, Cause we did write it two years ago, but um, in January, we went back and reread it and we were actually like, yeah, we still kind of fall in line with a lot of these things. Cause it really does talk about our journey of deconstruction and how we kind of began our healing process um, about many aspects of the church mm -hmm. and about God and about Christ. So, um, yeah, so that is our book and, and I'm proud of it. Um, at first we were just kind of giving it away freely because as you guys know, or maybe you don't in churches, they want a lot of money all uh, the time. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. I was like, I think people like just need, like, if they need healing, they need healing. I don't want to have to like be nickeling and diming people for it. So for a while we did just give it away for free. And then we finally talked with choir and they wanted to publish it. So that's where we are now. So, yeah. Yeah. I think what's so amazing too about that is like, it's, it's amazing. Like, so you just wrote the book initially together to kind of like tell your story. You, then you, um, you gave it away for free for a while, mm -hmm. which I think is awesome. And then decided, yeah, you know what? We went back and read through it, said, yeah, you know, we, we still believe this and we still see that there's a lot of value here. And I think that's why choir, you know, decided, hey, let's publish it. And oh my gosh, mm -hmm. that book has done so very, very well uh, with choir. It's actually been a success story, I think, for this year um, of, of an example of a book that uh, the choir put out that did great immediately and stayed, mm -hmm. you know, in the top, the top 10. I mean, it was number one for the longest time and then stayed in the top 10. Uh, you even dropped down the price to 99 cents for a month. Right. Uh, just again, mm -hmm. that same spirit of like, hey, we just want as many people as possible uh, to have access to this resource. And I know the feedback has been wonderful uh, from readers as well as, you know, just other, other authors, other people reading it and being impacted by it. Um, really proud of it. I, 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 I'm with you. I think, um, uh, speaking for choir, I think choir is really proud of that book as well and what you guys mm -hmm. have done and, and just the way you did it, the way you went about doing it, right? That initially, it wasn't, let's write a book and make a bunch of money. It's like, right. let's just write a book because we we got to tell the story and then giving it away and then like, well, okay, yeah, let's publish it, you know, make it the best we can and and um, and then making it again as available as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, that's really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just... I really did want to write it because I was so angry when we first decided that we weren't going to go to church anymore. I was really, really angry. And um, so it really was a great way to start my healing journey. Mm. And it has been very cathartic for me Good. to write that book. And I never thought I would say that, but, <laughs> um, and I do hope, I really do hope that it, it does help other people. Mm -hmm. Because like I said before, you know, when you, when you are a pastor's wife or a pastor, 
um, really anybody entering deconstruction, it can be very isolating and very lonely. And I think that is what, you know, the message I want to put out there is that you honestly are not alone. You know, you honestly are not. Yeah. Yeah. True. And then not to mention, um, you also contributed to another book, Par- oh, uh, yeah. Parenting Deconstructed. That's right. Uh, and so did Carl. So yes. um, now now it's like, I don't, there's just something about going through something and then being able to help out the next generation or the people mm-hmm. who are helping out the next generation, parents and people who are thinking about being parents. So um, do you want to maybe talk about uh, what you contributed to Parenting Deconstructed? And then, of course, if you want our lovely listeners to find you, which they will, okay. um, you can tell them where to find you on social media and all that good stuff. Okay, yeah. So Parenting Deconstructed, this was a um, wonderful collaborative book um, that I'm so grateful to be part of. And yeah, I learned so much. It's like, it's one of those things, like, I wish I could go back and do things different with my kids. (laughs) And I mean, I mean, yeah, right. We probably all feel that way. Um, even though I tried like not to be the typical pastor's wife or my kids being the typical pastor's kids, I'm sure there were some things that I couldn't help. Um, but yeah, I, I love this chapter that I wrote in parenting deconstructed because it really talks about how we can validate our children, because so many times, especially, um, in the Christian lifestyle, we want to bypass, um, hurt and trauma. We want to bypass that. We want to make it all better. We just want to fix it. Right. We don't want to see our kids hurting. And so I learned this lesson actually not from my kids, but from being a teacher on how to validate, um, a child, Um, no matter where they are, even as hard as it might sound sometimes what they say, we still need to reach out and we still need to validate them and let them know that we hear them and what they have to say really matters. So, um, yeah, so I was really happy to be able to write a, um, a chapter that focused on, on that in the book. Um, yeah, so you can find, I think, I'm not sure is parenting deconstruct. I'm not sure it's quite out yet. Um, but I'm sure you'll be out by the, yeah, it'll be out by the time this comes out. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Our, our other book out into the desert is already out. You can get it on Amazon. Um, that's probably the best place to get it. I think Kindle, um, through the month of October. So whenever this comes out, it is 99 cents on Kindle right now, but that might go back up after October. Um, the place to find me is we do a podcast called the desert sanctuary. Um, we have a Facebook page called the desert sanctuary. So you can always, um, touch base with me there. Um, I, I have a real heart for pastors, wives that are, are wounded and have been through the, some of the same kind of traumas that I have been. So I'm always happy to, to have one-on-one conversations with people and hopefully this book and maybe, and hopefully this podcast that we're doing right now will encourage some people to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you're, if you are a pastor's wife, no, you don't even have to be, but especially if you are, make Mm -hmm. sure to check out the desert sanctuary podcast and Facebook group. And yes, Laura, thank you for, for coming on here and for chatting with us for a while. And we appreciate your time. Thank you.
It's been great. Awesome. Thank you, Laura, so much. Uh, So glad to have you on the show. And thank you for being such a wonderful, very, very encouraging and inspiring heretic. Appreciate it. I've met Laura once or twice on Zoom and always like super, super nice, super sweet. And I'm so glad she could be here. I was able to uh, be one of us, one of their speakers on there out into the desert uh, podcast, I believe it is. And uh, it was, it was very nice. Uh, Both of them were just great people. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Who's going to, who's going to introduce the topic? (laughs) (laughs) You do it, Keith. And uh, hey, so as I said at the beginning, at the top of the show here, um, we are we are wrapping up this series. Um, what is the Bible? And uh, we've we've covered quite a lot of territory. It's been a lot of fun, but we decided on for the final episode to kind of just uh, land this plane uh, on the series. We would kind of just go around, and you probably picked up a little bit, uh, like from Matt <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Um, you probably picked up a little bit uh, some of our own personal feelings about the Bible. Um, but we thought it'd be, you know, good to just kind of like, let's just talk about it. Just have a kind of a round table discussion about the Bible. Um, you know, how, what do we think about the Bible now? Um, do we think it's something that still has authority or that we should still take it seriously? Um, or just how do we approach the Bible? Cause I, I think, I know I've, I've changed my view on that over the years and I'm sure all of you have different perspectives on that. So let's, uh, yeah, let's jump into it. What, or I guess, what are we saying? Why bother? Or should we bother with the Bible? I don't know who wants to kick us off there, but. Well, it's the inerrant, infallible word of God. So, of course, we should bother with it. <laughs> oh, God. God breathed. God breathed. Yeah, but so are people. People are God breathed, right? Adam was God breathed. He wasn't inerrant, infallible. So. <laughs> I, w- I would say, why not bother with the Bible? Just like any other, you know, any other book. But I think that. Um, the difference for me is why I bother with it. One, I was I was raised with it, so of course that shapes why I bother with it. And I do wonder sometimes um, if I had not been raised up uh, studying the Bible, uh, whether or not I would have anything to do with it later in life. Now, because I'm attracted to the concepts of the Bible, the ones that make sense to me, because I would say this, not everything in the Bible makes sense to me. And I, that's another thing. I think Christians in general have a hard time with the truth of the Bible. And by that, I mean, just acknowledging that there are contradictions. There are things yeah. that don't make sense. There yes. are things that are not applicable to your daily life today. There are things that are contrary to your culture, your upbringing, um, and your way of life. And I think a lot of Christians just have a hard time just acknowledging that truth. Just to say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of things in here I like, but there's a lot of things in here I don't like. It's actually some of this is uh, complete bullshit. Yeah, I'll be that. I'll be that. (laughs) But, you know, there's other stuff in here that I can fashion my life after that makes sense. um, That is light, salt and liberty that I can form my life after that I can raise my children uh, after. And those things are important to me. Um, I actually think whether or not someone is a Christian or not, I, there was a businessman, I can't remember who he is, but he had, he was, I wish I could remember who he is, but anyways, he was saying that he based a lot of his business practices on Proverbs, but he's not a Christian. 
Um, I think there's a lot in the Bible uh, that is practical that you could apply just uh, principles that work, whether or not you even believe there is a God, just principles that work. And for that reason, why not bother with the Bible? I like what, um, what were the three L's you had? Life, life, no, light like, and liberty or, uh, or love salt. light. Salt. I think I said well, light, salt and liberty. <laughs> Something in there. <laughs> I like that though. Yes. Yes. Light, light, salt and liberty. Um, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed that kind of framing. Um, you know, it's the, the book I'm sort of casually working on right now is on healing the relationship that we have to the Bible. Cause I find often when people stop reading the Bible, they're very angry at it. And I, to me living in that anger, I think I was there for a long time and living in that anger, I found, um, festered in me. I didn't like it. And so that's when, um, I mean, I was on a long journey academically to a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of years later, um, to make some sense of this ancient document. But as long as, so I don't want to be in an angry relationship with it. I want to be in an appropriate relationship with it um, of critique, of value, of joy, of sorrow. Um, but as long as there are people who are weaponizing it, I'm going to keep reading it to show them a different way to do it um, and show them what a healed relationship with scripture can look like. Um, and kind of like you, December, it formed me, it shaped me. One of my earliest memories is lying in bed and I had... Um, one of those cassette tapes. If people, if you don't know what a cassette is, it's a little plastic <laughs> thing that you put in something called a tape recorder. And before I could read, it would read stories to me. And when it beeped, you knew to turn the page. And one of the earliest ones I remember is the story of Jesus healing the man um, who was paralyzed that they lowered through the roof. Mm -hmm. And like that, I can't dissociate myself. Um, from those stories that shaped me. However, it's the stories and the presence of Christ that shaped me as much as the Bible. The Bible was a mechanism to get to know yep. um, that love. So I keep thinking about this story, um, and I can't remember whether it's a story from the Dalai Lama or Thomas Merton. It was one of the two um, about a Christian man who has become so disenchanted with Christianity that he goes to a, uh, a monastery to become a Buddhist monk. And when he meets with the abbot of the monastery, the abbot says to him, you've studied our texts, you've learned our practices. Now go back and be a good Christian. Um, and I think that story is sitting with me as I think about my relationship to the Bible, partly because I've spent the last five years thinking a lot about uh, ancestors. And for me, um, I think it's really important for me to recognize this as a resource that tells me the stories of how my ancestors understood God, tried to navigate hardship in the face of God. Uh, it's a resource that shows me how to seek to create community in ways that aren't shaped by white supremacy and colonialism. Um, it's a way of reorienting myself to uh, a communal understanding of how we collectively relate to the divine in contrast with the American narrative of it's me and Jesus. So to me, the Bible offers me a connection to ancestors, spiritual ancestors, um, 
And it also reminds me that I come from people who were more than what white supremacy has tried to make me. Uh, and for those reasons, I think it's really important. And in the same way that the Buddhist monk said to the Christian, go back and be a good Christian. Uh, I don't know that I feel like I get to walk away from this. Um, I feel like if I'm trying to step into somebody else's tradition, I'm only going to do it halfway. I'm only going to do it ineffectually. I'm going to do it in ways that are dishonoring. And I know that because I was raised in it with uh, Hinduism as well as Christianity. And I've watched lots of white people embrace Hinduism and not wrestle with caste and not wrestle with Brahminical patriarchy and not realize that they're stepping into a tradition that also has uh, ways of creating harm. So all of those are reasons that I, I want to hold on to and continue to wrestle with the Bible in its context. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like something you said, Shonda, um, I, because I, it's one of these things where like, I was just I was telling Matt the other day, uh, I'm doing this three part series of Sola, my, my Sola trilogy. And I realized that the final book in the Sola trilogy will be the first book I have ever written that has absolutely no references to the Bible. And I was so wow. excited about that. Wow. Um, and, but why, like, why am I so excited to write and publish a book that doesn't have any references to the Bible? And it's because I I have this weird, <clears throat> I think maybe we all do have some kind of weird relationship with the Bible because of course, I mean, yeah, that's been my, it's been the book that has shaped my spiritual understanding and my connection with God and Jesus and all that for uh, my whole life. Um, but I don't know. I'm just at a place where I'm ready personally uh, well, I think personally, I've, I've, for a while now, I've already moved beyond it. Like I was realizing a few years ago that like, um, like people, when people will say things to me like, you know, oh, you know, we need the Bible to know God's will and, and to do all this kind of thing. And I'm thinking, you know what? Not once in my entire life did I ever have a decision to make in my life and I grabbed the Bible and flipped it, flipped through it to find an answer. Never. I've mm. never, ever, ever ever done that. If you've done that, fine. That's great. <clears throat> but I just realized I've never gone to the Bible to get wisdom and direction and to figure out, should I take that job or should I move to Idaho or whatever? Like, um, <clears throat> now not that I didn't pray about it or whatever. Like, again, like, you know, Katie was saying that, um, the book is helpful to, to, to help me understand that I, I can have a connection with the divine. And so thank you Bible for telling me that. But then all my connection was with, with God directly. I, you know, I would pray about that and be, you know, ask God to guide me and give me wisdom or whatever, but I never flipped open the Bible for that. And, um, so I'd like to get some specific answer to something. So, um, yeah, I, I but I'm realizing I'm never going to escape it. I'm never, ever, ever, even if I write this book, even if I write 10 more books and they never reference the Bible again, um, I know I'm never going to escape it because, um, I think the, the people that I talk to, um, they're always, I'm on a daily basis. People are sending me messages and going, Keith, I was reading in John chapter you know, six and it says, blah, blah, blah. And well, how do I understand this? What does this mean? Like people, so people are constantly wanting to know something about the Bible and then I'm trying to help them figure something out. Right. So I know I'm never, ever going to I mean, unless I just like ignore those people, but I don't want to, I want to help people. All right. I, I, I want to help them 
make peace with the Bible. I want them to find uh, a genuine, uh, you know, Christ-like voice in the Bible. If there's something that seems to be, uh, you know, really negative and, and condemning of other people, I want to help them harmonize some of this stuff. So I know, I know I've never not do that, but there is a part of me that is, that is really looking forward to being able to start kind of moving beyond that Bible, the Bible, you know, because I don't think it, I, I think it's the Bible itself doesn't have as much power over me as it used to, I guess, put it that way. Um, whereas, you know, yeah, I still read it and I still study it and, you know, I still write blogs and books about it. I can't help that. Um, but it's just becoming something where, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to moving beyond it. Yeah. For me, um, I, like I'm, I personally, I'm right there with you. Uh, Katie, you said something earlier about so long as people are being harmed by it, then, then I'm going to care. And I'm like you too. And, that, and that's how I feel about theology as well. So long as there's harmful theology that oppresses people, I'm going to care about theology in, in some sort of way. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but for for me personally, it doesn't it doesn't affect my life anymore. Like I don't think I don't I don't personally care what the Bible says. Um, and that's not to say I don't care about people who do care about what the Bible says. I totally respect their study. Katie, your your doctorate is totally awesome, and that's your study. But for me personally, it's just it's not it's not something that I have a, an interest anymore. My interests are in things that are non biblical, like gardening or Tolkien. Um, but then when I'm talking about Tolkien and Gerard, I'm writing, they're both Catholic, right? So I have to, their, their theories and their, uh, literature is informed by a type of Christianity. So in that way, it's, I mean, it's, and, and it, it impacts our culture a lot, right? In positive and negative ways. So in some way, I think we should always care, but then how you apply it to your life is kind of just up to you, I guess, you know? In some ways, you could say gardening is very biblical, like the second story. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. And 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 in those aspects, like, but but it's not it's not because it's biblical. Therefore, I, it's right. self -ev right. It's self evident why it's I think divine, and and yes, I'm I'm happy that the Bible I guess affirms that, but I'm also like I wouldn't need that to be affirming. Right. Like the the practice for me evokes bliss and joy. So therefore that's kind of the, my natural conclusion is that's a divine experience. Uh, I mean, a question I get all the time from people um, in my groups, different clients, they'll say, you know, I'll talk about something chakras or whatever. And they'll say, well, is that biblical? Right. And I try to help people reframe that because that's not a great question. I'm like, well, I turned on a light switch this morning and is that that's biblical? also not biblical. <laughs> We're recording it's a podcast. A, a, lot, a lot of microphones podcast. involved, right? Now. Right, yeah. A podcast yeah. is not biblical, so you know, <laughs> um, as well. But Keith, I want to um, sort of gently probe yeah. something that I that you said uh, today, and and maybe in other um, kind of previous podcasts we've done together too, which is that you've moved beyond. Yeah, and I have to say, I feel a little resistance against that because it seems to be a valued statement that, like, those of us who are sort of more invested, I think, in in the Bible are not as far along as you are. And I'm, um, oh, I don't no, think no, that's no. what, I don't think that's what you mean. So I want to um, yeah. sort of gently probe that and maybe have a little conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, I don't intend it to sound that way. That's not what I'm 
trying to communicate. I'm just saying that like I've read, I wrote a blog about this like a year ago. Um, it was called I'm going full heretic <clears throat> where I was just basically saying like, I just don't care anymore. If it's like you were saying, is it biblical? Like what? Cause people ask me these kind of things all the time. You know, what does the Bible say about this? What does it say about that? And oh my gosh, as if, well, if the Bible says something that I really hate, I just, well, oh, well, my hands are tied. I guess I got to believe this stupid thing. And like, I'm just beyond that. Like, I don't care what the Bible says anymore about something um, to the point of like, what, whether or not it has some kind of um, control over my life and what I'm going to do or believe or act or behave. Um, I'd like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't personally care those questions like, well, in the garden of Eden, you know, when Adam and Eve were there, I wonder if they did blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't care. I don't ask those questions. I'm not wondering that. I don't think they were real people. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, I, I, I when I say move beyond, I'm just, I used to care about those things. I really did. Um, I've just gotten to a place now where, um, I, I don't really anymore. And so, yeah, that's what I mean. I, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't change my life or my beliefs or my thoughts if the Bible says X, Y, or Z. So it sounds, it sounds like what you're saying, and I don't want to speak for you, so tell me if this is incorrect, yeah. is that you've moved beyond your, the interpretive process that used to cage you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. And I, I guess when I say move beyond too, it is sort of like, like I'm alluding to this sort of, like, it's this fantasy that I could escape the Bible. You know what I mean? Like, I just right. would love, I would love to get to this place where I could write a book where it has nothing to do with the Bible, or I could live some kind of a life where it didn't matter what I thought about the Bible or what, you know what I mean? Because um, I think that whole thing about... This is again like I have a problem. I, I just I have this problem with the Bible even existing on some level because I feel like the the canonization of the of those specific books was a bad idea. You know what I mean? I I kind of thought it would be better. I want to go back to where when each church father had their own sort of personal thing of like, I like the shepherd of Hermas and I like the Didache and I really don't like Hebrews and I really don't like uh second Peter, uh, but you do. And that's cool. But you also like the book of Enoch and you would throw in, you know, the wisdom of Solomon. Great. And that's cool. Let's go, let's go to lunch. Like where we all were free to decide for ourselves what books or ideas or thoughts, um, were meaningful to us spiritually, right? And so I guess that's what I mean when I'm saying move beyond. Like I'm stepping out of this canonized, very limited canonized single. Oh, this and only this is what God wants to say to the world. Um, and say, well, that's good. I mean, again, I'm not devaluing it. A lot of it I do really appreciate. I love Ephesians. I love Colossians. I love the Gospel of John. I love, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. I love all that stuff. Um, um, but I also love Rumi and Black Elk and Socrates and, you know, a lot of other, uh, Brene Brown, <laughs> you know, Richard Rohr. There's a lot of other writers and thinkers that I really appreciate that really, I, I mean, on some level, I would almost say this to me is like a scripture. But again, I don't, I'm not imposing it on anybody else. That's my problem with the canon. The canon does impose on everybody else that, the, no, no, this has to be super meaningful to you, even if it isn't, but it, but it has to be because it's the word of God. Well, because some guys a long time ago, I don't even know their names decided for the rest of us that these, this is the word of God. And these are the only meaningful things that God wants to say to you. Um, 
yeah, so that's what I, to unpack what I mean by moving beyond. It's like, yeah, I I I have an expanded quote unquote canon uh, that's kind of a personal one um, that I don't want to impose on anybody else. But to me, I guess I've added more things um, to my own personal canon. I guess. Cool. Thanks. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I, I want to respond to a few things that you have said that I, I've been just listening to your words and your tone and your choice of words, um, Keith. And I just want you said things that I would almost consider scripture. And uh, when you mentioned Rumi and the other ones that you you, you said, in my personal opinion, um, anything that anything that shapes or tunes your moral compass and uh, become some type of framework for how you live your life is scripture, whether it's Mary had a little lamb or John three sixteen. If it's something that, if it's something that tunes your, your, your sense of self uh, and helps to define how it is that you exist in the world to me, that is scripture. Right. Um, and then something else you said that stuck to me a few minutes ago when you said it, the Bible doesn't have as much power over me as it used to. What I find a lot of folks that either are very fundamentalist in their faith or who have decided who used to be that way or used to be Christian and now they're atheists, they all on both sides, they speak like that as if the Bible is something more than a book, an inanimate object written by whoever, canonized by whoever, that you didn't literally actually go out and buy off a shelf and pick up and give it life by reading it. In other words, yeah. it never had any kind of control over you, ever. You had given it whatever power that it had, like any other book. Every yeah. book sits on a shelf somewhere, printed by somebody, bound by somebody. Somebody slaps a price on it. You decide it's worth that price. You go and buy it, and it's only animated because you pick it up and flip its pages. Otherwise, it will sit there and turn to dust. And it's yeah. the same as the Bible. It's the only life that it has, the only power that it has, the only anything that it ever had was whatever man gave to it. And I think a lot of people, and this goes back to something Katie said too, about having the right relationship with the Bible. Um, I was on a podcast with the gentleman, and I can't remember his name right now, but I believe he used to be either on this show or he was a guest on this show as one of our heretics of the week or something. But he was talking about how he he's an atheist. He no longer believes uh, in the Bible and this and that. And he was talking about how his whole life changed after he stopped believing. And I was listening to the gentleman and he I heard beyond his words as an empath, what I heard was so much anger uh. and so much wrath. And the whole time I'm thinking... This person is, has a has a uh, offense against God Himself, <laughs> against the church, against the Bible, and probably <clears throat> not against God, the church, or the Bible, but against how Christians have presented God, the church, and the Bible to Him. And that offense is is He's so full of that offense that it's actually still controlling Him, even though He says He doesn't believe in it. Because in my personal uh, opinion. Anything that you can think of, speak of, or have spoken to you, and it shifts your attitude, your mood, your thoughts, that still, that thing, whether you want to believe it or not, whatever that thing is, that thing has control over you. 
if someone can speak something to you or you have a conversation and immediately your mood changes and you shift and your tone changes and you start, you're still there. You're still in that place. You're still the angry child sitting on the pew. You're still the person that thinks they're condemned to hell, even though you stop believing in it. Because why are you angry about it? Just let it go. And so I think that um, a lot of people have a... I want to say have a, a interesting relationship with the Bible in that they have given it more life than it has. They have given it more power than it has. They have made the Bible itself. God It's just a book. It's a book, <laughs> right? It's a book written it. by people who are writing about what they think about God, who have some other people canonized and said is the word of God. And yeah. you can believe it or not believe it. You could burn it or read it. It's a book. Right. Yeah, and just so you know, I'm not I'm not an atheist. I just want to make sure it's clear. Like <laughs> yeah, I have a right. I have a certain opinion about the Bible, but I still believe in a God and I still believe in Christ. So you know, it's interesting because I'm I'm struck by where I think we all have commonality on this is we are all very concerned with you know that fancy word, bibliolatry, the way in which some traditions worship the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I only learned that term because uh, I was working for an interfaith uh, political organization in the late 90s when the Southern Baptist Convention uh, voted to uh, proclaim that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. And and my boss at the time, a former Southern Baptist, was like, that's bibliolatry. That's worshiping the Bible instead of yes. worshiping Jesus. And yes. I think we do share a certain um, understanding of that distinction and want to make sure that people aren't worshiping the Bible and uh, putting it into a place where uh, it can do harm uh, because it is unquestionable. I think that's an important part of anybody's deconstruction process. And then we get to reconstruct in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah. And so the, the decon yes. And the deconstruction can involve how we understand God as well as how we understand the Bible and the reconstruction can look like a lot of different things. And I think part of what's interesting about the conversation we're having and some of you are more solid scholars on like the church fathers of the first four or 500 years. I don't have the sense that any of those folks who created the canon were necessarily staking a claim that the Bible was literal and factual. They were stating a claim that it was true and that it gave us insight into who the divine was. And so I think part of what we're pushing back against isn't the original, even the original canon. Right. Um, and so I think that that's also important to recognize this notion of biblical literalism is a very recent thing. That was not the original intent, even of the writers of it uh, or the people who uh, created this canon as a way of saying, hey, we got to figure out some way to have a shared conversation. We're narrowing it to this. Um, so I think that that's that's important. And that then invites the question. So how do we know what to hold on to for those of us who want to hold on to anything? How do we navigate the hard passages? Um, I have some thoughts on that, but I wanted to see what other folks thought first. Hmm. Well, I think you make a good point about how there's a, for some Christians, and I'll admit I was for a time, this was me too. 
there's this blurry line between the Bible and God. And to question the Bible is to question God. Or God said this because I because Jeremiah wrote this down. And like, you know, so like part of my deconstructing the Bible has led me to a place where I've said, well, no, Jeremiah said, or Elijah said, like that's what they thought. And that's it's useful and helpful to understand what people back then thought about God and how they understood God. But but I I don't make the assumption that because they said it and it's in a book called the Bible that God necessarily said that or thought that right. So um, I, I think that that's why I hope this series is very helpful for people. If nothing else, is to help us move beyond approaching the Bible as if it is stuff like again I say this all the time. Uh, God didn't write the Bible. People wrote the Bible. And that is a very helpful thing for us to wrap our brains around. If we can, if we could at least make that, that's a, that's a, such a helpful step. If we could just take a step away and, and admit, you know, again, because we, 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 we can, one level we can say, you know, well, who wrote Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah. Yeah. Who wrote Elijah? Well, Elijah did. Yeah, exactly. Not God. Right. But then, but then we'll, so we'll say that we'll acknowledge that like, oh, this is the book of blank written by so-and-so. But then we'll, we'll still. But then we'll flip back around and say that what we're reading was God, or that God said it, right? Um, attribute it to God. Yes, exactly. And so it's like I got in trouble once because I tweeted something like that. I said something like, "Imagine the audacity of writing a book and calling it the Word of God, or of writing a book about God that you you are so in love with that you expect God to conform to what you wrote about God." Like, you know what I mean? Those are some of the ways that I. I see they're problematic in the ways that I, that I used to look at the Bible that I don't look at it anymore. Mm. That makes me think of Katie a little bit ago had said, whenever she brings up the conversation about chakras, somebody will ask her, well, is that biblical? And what they really are saying was, is God okay with that? Did God yes. say that was okay? That's, that's really right. what the question they're asking when they say, is that biblical? And I think that's so funny. I don't think they even know that they're asking that. But that really is the question that they're asking. What's What's interesting too is they'll um, a lot of people will turn it around and say, "Oh, you know who else asked the first question? Did God really say <laughs> that?" That's true. <laughs> yes, you know who else, right? You a know of whom snake. I speak. Yeah, it was a talking snake because it never says it was the devil. It says it was a talking snake. So, well, wow, either you have way, been the talking snake. Ain't a, yeah. <laughs> Either way, the talking snake's not is not a good thing, right? That's what they're alluding I to. I don't know. Like, I mean, the snake wasn't wrong, was he? He kind of told him the truth. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. See? Well, um, what, one thing I find, you know, with that question, like, I, I think you're right, December. A lot of people are saying, is God okay with this? But a lot of people are also expecting me to have the same method that yeah. they do for encountering the Bible, right? Which is that you find a verse that um, either scares you or gives you permission. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you sort of follow it. You know, online, uh, on Facebook or something like that, it's super hard to sort of present a different method um, in comments. And generally people, uh, sometimes the question is just genuinely um, curious. You know, people just want to know, like, is that biblical? That's fine. Um, if they're hostile, you know, they get in flight, fight, freeze mode. And I don't try to have that kind of conversation because it's not all that helpful. Um, but you know, what I do in my various coaching and programs is show people new ways to interpret. 
so often some of those problematic passages are just problematic. Like they're, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I like the word redeemable, but they're not, they're, they're not showing us who God is. They're showing us um, jackass ways that people responded to um, their superhuman lives. But some are reinterpretable. Um, so, uh, you know, we spent quite a bit of time on the story of um, the first man, the first woman in the garden uh, here before. So I don't need to reiterate that. Y'all go back, listen to the past episodes. Um, I don't think that's a story about the subjugation of women. I think it's a very different kind of story. I think that one is redeemable. I think we can interpret it in new ways. Um, that talking snake is a common element of folk stories. And that's kind of cool. You know, we have an early jungle book. Without all the racist implications in Genesis, and, yes, yeah, it's true. You said something that's interesting, and um, it made me my uh, my my preacher hat. I did pastor for almost ten years, so I'm subject to slide into like, oh, that would be a good sermon mode sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. Everything is fodder for a preacher, you know. Right. Y'all, if you play if you play an instrument, do not tell a preacher that you play an instrument. They will grab you in for a solo so quick. Yeah. yeah, everything. You can you gonna yeah. get snatched. So you, you, you said something a minute ago about people are looking for permission, and um, I thought about that's interesting. If I was gonna be teaching on why do we pick the Bible up, <laughs> I would be teaching a three part series on for purpose, for performance, and for permission. Hmm. One, we're looking uh, for our purpose in the earth. We're looking for how to direct our performance in the earth. And we're looking for permission of what to do and what not to do in the earth. Um, yeah. And that ties back to something that Keith has said when he said, it doesn't have as much power over me. It only has as much power as you give it. And so some people feel so passionately when they do get away from uh, the church or the Bible because they have allowed either when they're younger, maybe it has been oppressed on, pushed on to them. But when they're older, they have allowed the Bible to incarcerate them. So it's yeah. controlling everything you do. It's controlling your decisions. It's controlling your purpose, your performance, and your permissions in the earth. And so when you get free from that, it makes sense that you might feel a little, you feel some kind of way, like people say, <laughs> feel some kind of way. A little, um, and I know we're getting ready to wrap up, but earlier over the last year or so, there's been this, in the, I don't know about in my vanilla brother and sisters, but in the black church realm, <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion about the sage burning and there was a oh, pastor. Yeah. Have y'all you have seen that maybe on black Twitter or around, you know, anyway, in the, in the black faith realm is like, you don't need, you know, you got people burning. What do you need sage for? Da, 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 and this, that. And I'm thinking this whole conversation is just so unimportant and irrelevant. Why are we even, and it's all, you don't need that. And that they people trying to put the devil on it and put witchcraft uh, and did. And I'm like, it isn't in the Bible where it talks about burning incense. Did I mean, isn't that in the, somebody help me out. And then in the Old Testament, it, then they burn yeah. incense in the Bible, you know, and I'm thinking, why does, why does everything, this is something a lot of Christians uh, struggle with to me, seems to me, everything in every other culture does not have to be demonic or witchcraft or right. yes, or whatever the case, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it, and it seems to me that if it's not quote biblical, it's automatically on the other side, which is witchcraft, demonic, wrong, or some of the some of the. If you read some of the stuff in the Bible uh, that the people did in the Old Testament and the New Testament, some other culture might think that that's demonic 
or yeah. crazy or witchcraft. Bring the sick and put some oil on them. Somebody might think that that's crazy. So what makes a burning sage more crazy or lighting up your chakras more crazy than, than lighting incense or putting oil on somebody? You know, and right. it's just like, just, you I know, got, do you, boo. Yeah, <laughs> I got to respond to the sage thing. I haven't seen the Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter, so I don't see all those conversations. But, you know, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. I get comments yeah. like that all the time. Um, but I'm in a, I'm currently in a temporary home for like six months, like a short-term rental in Texas. Y'all, first thing I did was run out and get sage and sage this place. <laughs> first thing. But my sage is ethically sourced. You can, uh, it's ethically sourced. You can buy a lot of unhealthy sage that takes money away from um, Native American tribes for whom it was important. So if you're going to sage, do it with respect to Native culture. Amen. Get appropriately sourced sage and don't appropriate culture. Do it in a way that's... Uh, good for you and your ancestors. And I'm in Texas, so I feel like this is appropriate to the land that I'm on. But I got to say, my I was here alone um, right after we started renting it, just hanging curtains and stuff like that. And there was a knock on my door. It was like nine at night, pitch black. And there was a like one, two, three knocks on my door. I was like, who is that? Like no one even, we just got the keys to this place. Opened the door and no one was there, but my keys were in the lock. Oh, I just left my keys in the lock. And so I was like, you know, this is a situation where the Bible is not going to be helpful. <laughs> so I, is that biblical? I, I, did, it was, it was, I took what I did was pretty biblical right there. I was like, ooh, I don't know if this is like a death knock or if this is like <laughs> someone was just wanting to let me know my keys were in the lock and being a nice neighbor, but didn't stay to introduce themselves because they're shy or have anxiety or whatever. Whatever this is, I'm getting the hell out of here and I'm going to get some sage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I probably would have went the other way. To someone, I got on the phone, talked to someone on my way to the car, locked the door, got my keys, went and got sage. Amazing. I, would, I probably would have went, went the whole other way. I've had so many. We need to do a whole series on, you know, ghosts and goblins. And, Ghostly. And yeah, I'm down for, I I down for that. I got stories. I got stories. Yeah, I got stories. But I probably would have went the other way. I'd have opened the door and seen the kids and been probably like, thank you, Lord, for letting me know the keys are still in the door. <laughs> I probably <laughs> went the other way. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was a nice, um, hey, it was a nice heads up. I just didn't know the origins of it. So, <laughs> so I got my sage, you know, but yeah. So like, is that biblical? So right. My approach to the Bible isn't like, that's not even my first thought anymore. Um, and I, I remember once I went to, I uh, was in Chico and I can't remember how I met this person. They were a college student. I think I met them at the coffee shop and they were part, they were part of the queer community, but really, really struggling with their faith. So they had this queer Bible study. Um, and I was like, well, may, may I attend just to be helpful and be a support? I promise I won't chime in. I won't tell anyone. I just want to see what you guys are thinking. If I can be helpful in any way, I will. It was so, it was so heartfelt, but so painful because they were reading very literally and they were like, no, it's okay to be gay, but it's not okay to be in queer relationships. Uh -huh. And they were not sort of open to other dimensions of interpretation. I wasn't going to force that on them. It wasn't my job. But, you know, like that's where I'm passionate yeah. because people in this particular stage of their journey, um, if, if and when they're open, can receive new ways to be in relationship with Bible. And I'm so passionate about that. And I've tried to quit it. It won't quit me. I feel like I'm in Brokeback Mountain. Yes. No, that's right. Quit you, Bible. I can't quit you. No, no. See, Katie, that's exactly right. See, this is the reason why I know I'm never going to escape it because I'm always running into people like that, that they are so filled with anxiety and fear. And, and they're so troubled about like, 
a, a loved one died and they didn't pray the prayer. Are they in heaven or, mm. or, or like the, the, you know, the homosexual issue, like my kid just came out as trans or gay or something. And well, what do I do? And because the, in their mind, the Bible tells them a certain, they think the Bible says a certain thing. And so, yeah, because of that, like, well, I can never stop. I, I don't ever want to stop helping people sort of make peace with those kind of things and, and find out, well, no, it really doesn't say those things. So yeah, because of that, absolutely. I know I'm never going to get free of the Bible. Well, and I think that's why this is such an important question, uh, conversation, because I do think that um, none of us who are on this show would be engaging the world we, we engage in the way that we engage it if we hadn't also been shaped by those stories. Yes. There is no way of extracting ourselves from them. There's no way of being people who were not shaped in many ways by that text. So I was having a conversation with my beloved friend, Jose Morales. He was really involved in with some pretty conservative uh, Latino churches. I was involved with some pretty conservative Asian churches. And we were talking about how hard it was to engage, particularly in LGBTQ uh, justice issues in those communities. And Jose said something to me that I will never forget. He said, listen, we're never going to get the fundamentalists, the people who are following the Bible literally, but most of our folks are Pentecostal. And that means we can have the conversations uh, because Pentecostals recognize the power of the Bible and the action of the Holy Spirit in the current moment. Yeah. Now it may take a long time, but there is often with the folks that we've worked with this moment where their experience of the sacred within queer folks comes in conflict with the way they've been reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit wins out. I'm not saying that's always true, but that's another reason I think it's really important for us to wrestle with the text and to stay wrestling with it for those of us who are in spaces where we can make those kinds of differences. So I think the reason I wanted to mention that was just to say to anybody listening to the show who's like, I want to walk away from it. I can't. There are other ways of engaging it. Um, that I think are life-giving as well. Are we, uh, have we, have we solved the problem? Have we solved the Bible problem? <laughs> <laughs> I think we solved world hunger, the Bible problem, Middle East peace, everything. We didn't turn it all. But in case and we also did what it. the next series is going to be. Yeah, I think the yes. ghost stories series, I want to do that. We got to talk about that. We have ghost stories to tell. Look, I got stories to tell. I got stories to tell. Right, uh, so another things we got, um, Look, I need for all y'all to go visit our website, which is under construction, but it's still uh, functional right now. So go get you a pillow, get you a mug, uh, get you whatever is over there at uh, www.heretichappyhour.com. Check us out. See what we're up to. If nothing else, just go over there and click on the link to go to our podcast and listen and download those. Okay. Go check us out at www.heretichappyhour.com. And we want to hear your thoughts on the Bible, but also your ghost stories. And so you can post those in Heresy After Hours. It's our free Facebook group. It's open to everyone. We got thousands of deconstructing Christians in there. And there's really good jokes. Y'all, there's like really funny cartoons that get posted in Heresy After Hours. So you need to check it out. Um, come join us there. Yes. And um, if you would like to support your favorite podcast, uh, head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. You can join, you can support us. Uh, we do appreciate it. If you already support us, thank you so much. Uh, it means so much to us. You guys are awesome. Um, but if you'd like to support us, uh, we would like to send you, uh, we, well, when you sign up, you'll see whatever level and tier you sign up for, you will unlock 
um, bonus footage, extra stuff we've recorded just exclusively for you, our patrons. You'll also get access to the private exclusive Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group um, and many, many, many other goodies. So go over there and check it out. And, uh, and thank you so much. You know, I was just listening to a podcast that said, if you liked this show, send it to 10 of your friends to help us spread the word. You can definitely do that. We would be thrilled. If that feels like too much work, the very least you can do is rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to this show on. It is how people like you find people like us. Yeah. I'd say send it to at least one friend, right? Get no, 10. It's got to be, be 10. One friend, they, they would love this. Be evangelist for us. Yes. Amen. Yeah, maybe we should make those little tracks that people can yes. get out. <laughs> <laughs> or those chain emails I used to say. If you don't send this right. to more people.